Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Uh, hello, I'm Dr. Verstovchik from MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I'm joined today for a lovely discussion by my good friend and colleague, John Mascarenas from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Hello, John. Hey, Serge. Thanks for including me today. So we're going to discuss over the next about 10 minutes uh, the best practices in managing side effects. And there are some side effects from uh, current JAK uh, inhibitors, current and one that uh, soon is to be possibly approved. Uh, there are four of them. We're going to talk about ruxolitinib, fedratinib, pacritinib, and momelotinib. Um, you and I uh, probably use the majority of the patients in frontline setting ruxolitinib as a backbone for uh, what we want to do with the patients. Now, are there specific side effects that you uh, are worried when you prescribe ruxolitinib, and how do you go about it? So, you know, I think at this point, most people are quite comfortable with ruxolitinib um, after a decade of commercial use and experience with a drug that I would say is really well tolerated. I mean, in the in the spectrum of drugs that we give in, in malignant hematology, this is a, a an easy drug to deliver, twice a day dosing, um, easy bruising, dizziness, headaches uh, were some of the more frequent low-grade complaints that were reported in the comfort studies. Sometimes I see them in patients, but often they're so low-grade and they're um, outshined, outshined by you know, the, the, the clinical improvements that the patient sees that they're very rarely a reason for discontinuation. Mm-hmm. I really can't remember the last person I saw who discontinued for gastrointestinal toxicity. Um, so from a, from a side effect profile, it's a, it's a well-tolerated drug. Now there is on target um, and expected uh, myelosuppression. Um, you get a certain degree of um, thrombocytopenia and anemia. It's pretty predictable in its, in its cadence and its kinetics. Um, I think it's important, as you've pointed out previously, to treat through particularly in the first several months, the anemia, because it, it often does get better. And um, the thrombocytopenia is something that one needs to, to calculate and, and, and potentially adjust the dose depending on, the, on how, um, how severe the, the, the curve is with the thrombocytopenia. So you need to be aware of uh, the myelosuppression. You need to follow the patients and, and track that and potentially dose adjust. But um, in many cases, I would say treat through and, and see what the next three to six months brings you before uh, one, uh, definitely before one discontinues therapy, uh, but before one starts reducing the dose unnecessarily. So that's, I think those are the major initial considerations. It, with ruxolitinib, um, you know, there is over time probably an increased risk of infectious complications, whether it's viral, um, bacterial, uh, maybe some atypical uh, fungal infections. These are not common um, and um, for the most part are things that we could see anyway in patients, but may occur at a higher frequency. I think the, the shingles, uh, which I used to see more frequently, I rarely see at this point because I have all my patients get the Shingrix vaccine and, and that seems to significantly reduce um, the uh, re- the occurrence of shingric of uh, shingles. Um, I you know I, I'm not a believer that there's an increased risk of um, second secondary primary malignancies such as lymphoma that was once a concern. Um, I think skin cancers, um, squamous cell and basal cell, you know, might be there, and particularly in patients in with PV um, that were treated with ruxolitinib that saw a lot of hydroxyurea. So other than skin exams and um, watching blood counts. Um, and you know, managing uh, you know uh, infectious issues if they arise, it's a pretty easy uh, drug to tolerate without a, a black box warning, without any specific uh, supplementation needed. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Excellent summary. And uh, giving vaccine to all the patients is quite a surprise to me. We are a little bit more selective and perhaps suggest this to older people, but it's good practice. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, the skin cancer uh, comes uh, up uh, occasionally, and I want to see of you. I agree in polycythemia vera, you know, if the patients have better outcome. They're going to be on ruxolitin for, I don't know, seven, 10 years on average. And maybe this is a little bit more concerning in that sense of the life expectancy. But in malofibrosis patients, this transformative effect on the spleen and quality of life, to my view, and knowing that the life expectancy is shorter, uh, that issue of skin cancer is not such a big deal. I mean, we deal with that. We don't prevent patients from benefiting from ruxolitin or stop ruxolitin because of appearance of a skin cancer. What's your take? I 100% agree with you. Skin cancer in 2022 going into 2023 is is not going to um, affect their their longevity and their duration of benefit of RUX. And um, I, I I just I have patients get uh, you know yearly skin exams and and address lesions that appear in a timely manner so that they don't become disfiguring. But it's really a minority of patients, and it's it's rarely a reason for even consideration of discontinuation. I can't remember the last time I really stopped ruxolitinib in a myelofibrosis patient who's benefiting from the drug because of the appearance of squamous cell or basal cell. So I agree with you. In my mind, not, not a major concern. And, and very shortly on fedratinib, it's not very much in use, and this is because of toxicities. Uh, that's my perspective here, because otherwise it's very good for the spleen and symptoms, but comparing at least in the frontline setting, it has a GI toxicity, but two-thirds of the patients require some anti- Nausea, anti-diarrheal, you have to measure thiamine because of possibility of interfering with the uptake of thiamine from GI tract. So it's mandatory to measure and supplement it if it's low. It's a little bit more complicated to give it, but I do give it in a second setting. And you know, if you give anti-nausea, anti-diarrheal, and thiamine, yeah, it's three extra pills. But if you do get that, people can have a good responding symptom and the spleen. But that's a, a smaller group of people, actually, even in a second line. There is much more enthusiasm about pacritinib then. Uh, how, how can you summarize for us in a couple of minutes uh, side effects of pacritinib? So pacritinib, um, like fedratinib, is also a FLT3 inhibitor. So there is a GI toxicity profile associated with pacritinib. Um, in my opinion, and if you look at the data, it's, it's mostly low grade. It occurs within the first two cycles, very easy to manage. It's about half the patient's. Um, it's rarely a reason for discontinuation. And as you pointed out, if one is prepared for the potential for some diarrhea and nausea and has an antiemetic or an antidiarrheal uh, available, it is very easy to manage. Um, so I think just um, making sure the patient is aware that there's a potential for GI toxicity is half the battle. Um, the the other um, aspect to, to consider with uh, pacritinib is that there may be an increased risk of, of bleeding tendency with pacritinib, irrespective of the depth of the of the thrombocytopenia. And of course, pacritinib is primarily used in patients with thrombocytopenia, uh, and thrombocytopenia often associates with bleeding. Um, and we did see um, uh, an increased frequency of, of epistaxis and GI bleeding. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to ask you about this because the medication was on clinical hold by FDA before approval. And it was because of the bleeding, I think. You need to have some EKG measurements before you give it. And be careful not to combine it with medications that increase the QTC interval. How, how important is this? So, you know, when the final data analysis of safety was performed, there really wasn't a difference in um, cardiovascular events uh, when comparing 
uh, pacritinib to best available therapy, which also included ruxolitinib. So I think the initial concern that led to the, the clinical hold for this toxicity concern was probably not actually a, a valid concern as it relates to pacritinib. The bleeding, on the other hand, I, I do think there, there's an increased risk of bleeding. We, I don't know that we, I definitely don't know why that is, whether it's a qualitative platelet uh, effect. My recommendation when um, using pacritinib, um, and particularly since it's in low platelets to begin with, is to address um, you know, underlying coagulopathies. Uh, this is not the kind of drug that you would necessarily want to give um, while receiving concurrent um, anticoagulation, um, and um, um, you know, and 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 to uh, monitor the patients for worsening thrombocytopenia and, and the need for dose adjustments or uh, platelet transfusions. But the reality is, if you look at patients with low platelets, extreme thrombocytopenia, they have a very poor prognosis. So I think some of the safety concerns that that may have even existed, um, whether they're, they're even valid at this point, are often overshadowed by the fact that it's a very poor prognostic group of patients with, with limited to no options. And Pacritinib really offers an, an opportunity to salvage some of these patients. And the upcoming mamelotinib, if it gets approved by next summer, it looks like it's pretty safe. What we know uh, is that the dose intensity, that means uh, the same dose as it was prescribed, stays on uh, for a longer period of time. 96, 97% of the patients just enjoy it at the, at the given dose. And it can improve the to degree of quality of life spleen and, and uh, can also improve some uh, anemia as well. So uh, I'm actually less concerned about momelotinib here. Uh, no GI, no neurological, no little bit of bleeding. Not, nothing really stands up. It seems kind of a fair drug uh, and uh, good for the improvement on multiple aspects of a malfibrosis patients without much of a toxicity. Is that right? I mean, th that's my impression as well. I mean, the, there was initially a concern in the early development of the drug of the potential for peripheral neuropathy, which was reported between 10 and 12%. Um, but when you look at the full, and, th and there's a lot of data with mamalotinib now in terms of patient exposure and years of exposure and, and, um, and long-term exposure and, and uh, safety uh, follow-up, it does have a very, uh, very attractive safety profile. So um, not a significant signal of, of uh, GI tox or, as you pointed out, neurologic or infectious toxicity. So uh, it, it, it would be a nice uh, fourth drug, um, you know, uh, addition to our armamentarium that doesn't bring a lot of toxicity baggage with it. Yeah, I agree with you. So hopefully we'll get it uh, approved. So thank you, John. It was a wonderful discussion on the safety profiles of uh, four different JAK inhibitors. I hope this was useful for our listeners and viewers. Uh, thank you, and uh, have a good day. Thanks, Serge. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.